to submit a story, topic, or have any other inquiries, please email submit at skibanewsnation.com. Also, you can email Jeremiah Skiba personally at jeremiah at skibanewsnation.com. Also, email Jake personally at jake at skibanewsnation.com. If you want to write us a letter, send us something, help support us, or just say hi, please send your letter to Jeremiah Skiba, P.O. Box 560-271, The Colony, Texas 75056. If you write us a letter, I'll do my best to write you back. Hey, Skiba News Nation family, thank you for watching. Please like, share, and subscribe. You can also help support this channel by getting yourself some Skiba News Nation merch. Also, we are proud to announce that we are now on Patreon, where you will get bonus content, shoutouts, and much more. Thank you again for watching and helping us stay on the quest for truth. Huge shout out to all our Patreon supporters. Thank you so much for your support. We couldn't do this show without you. If you want to help support us, go to patreon.com forward slash Nation. We are also proud to announce that Skiba News Nation podcast is now available on podcast platforms. what it costs. I want to know what the truth is. And I hope that people, my son, anybody, if my name comes up, whether you like me, whether you agree with me or not, at least you can respect the fact that he's on a quest for truth. He's on a quest for truth. Welcome to Skiba News Nation. Bringing you unfiltered views, news, interviews, discussions, and more. And now, here's your host, Jeremiah Skiba, award-winning musician and son of Rob Skiba. Hey, Skiba News Nation family, welcome to episode 29, and we will be on Rumble. YouTube gave us a strike, so we'll be talking about FBI at Twitter. Intel shows how much big media is infiltrated. FBI is gaslighting us. Winter storms, more snow on the way. JFK memos to NASA, an all-new Opus Corner. And for history, we're going to be talking about the mysterious case of D.B. Cooper, memes, and much more, so stay tuned. They did it again. YouTube is trying to censor our content and took down our last episode. So, uh, yeah, but we're going to keep on keeping on. And uh, so, as always, let me introduce my co-host, Jake Grant. We could talk more about it. Welcome, Jake. Hey, Jeremiah. What's up, man? You look like you're dressed for an award show. Yeah, it's for our, for our, is this our first strike or second strike? Yeah, they, they keep striking, trying to get us out, but we're going to keep plugging away. Uh, this time it was for controversial misinformation uh, mm -hmm. regarding sensitive medical topics. So uh, <laughs> we'll do our best to keep YouTube as a platform, but just so you guys know, this is bogus. Mm -hmm. And make sure you subscribe to our Rumble wherever you're seeing this. It's uh, rumble.com forward slash Nation and our bit shoot as well you can also subscribe to opus corner i think we're we might post it there so but yeah, if you're watching you already found the platform i guess so 
yeah, man, I'm, I'm ready to get into it if you are. All right, well, let's do it. It's current news. All right, so just a quick reminder for everyone. This is the definition of a conspiracy theorist. The term used to discredit someone who speaks about things you can't bear to look at because if it were true, it would reveal a darkness in the world you're simply not ready to accept. And, Man, that's uh, so true for us right now, too. It's true for a lot of things. Yeah, I, I think what happened was we played a video from several months back that was heavily red flagged in their algorithm. And even though restrictions on uh, talk about the medical system in the past two years has kind of lightened up in public media forums. Uh, it probably was one or two of the little videos we played that was like put into the system as a trigger. Let's go ahead and check out this first video of the FBI at Twitter. Now that Elon Musk purchased Twitter mm -hmm. and he's finding that, you know, they, they literally had FBI people embedded in Twitter that were holding back information from him. Like there was a guy that he fired that was an FBI guy that worked for the FBI at one point in time and now was one of the head guys at Twitter and was withholding information from him while he was trying to release information about allegedly i should say allegedly so i don't get in trouble here with this what he was saying essentially is this person was a bottleneck to releasing this data yeah. where they were trying to find out like why did president trump get banned you know what was going on in terms of shadow banning conservative people and how much coordination was going on inside the company to try to suppress certain ideologies oh, yeah, and yeah. magnify other ones and it's pretty stunning wow all right so uh just incriminating evidence coming out that there is a collusion between government and big media to censor and uh distort public perception which to me sounds like a violation of the first amendment and of course here's fbi's statement on twitter it is unfortunate that conspiracy theorists oh there's that term <laughs> and others are feeding the american public misinformation with the sole purpose of attempting to discredit the agency. Um, well, <laughs> just for the record, it's not really about discrediting the agency, but calling to mind figures like this gentleman, Edward Snowden, right? Mm -hmm. Do you truly believe that when the first wave, the second wave, the 16th wave of the you-know-what is a long-forgotten memory, that these capabilities will not be kept and these data sets will not be kept? Uh, so whenever talking about, uh, data sets, he's of course referring to the very, uh, quarantine technology that was developed during 2020, 2021, that was implemented, uh, tracking users, interaction, travel, all of these things are exactly what we're talking about when it comes to collusion between big government and big media. Intel is showing us how much big media has been infiltrated. Let's check this clip out. I'm going to pull up this story here from, uh, we have the story from Daily Mail. This one's big. 
Spooks infiltrate Silicon Valley. Facebook is riddled with ex-CIA agents, including President's Briefer, who now runs Harmful Content Team. So many ex-FBI work at Twitter. They have a Slack channel, and Google is rife with ex-CIA. So uh, there you go. The intelligence agencies run tech, the technology sector. Uh, I, I guess I'll throw it to you, uh, Blake, having been involved in the tech sector. What do you see with this? Have, have you personally witnessed anything like this or what are your thoughts? I, we have personally witnessed like Google coming down and, and being unfair, right? So when we were trying to build a small dollar fundraising email operation, we would find a disproportionate amount of our fundraising emails would get sent to spam in Gmail. Well, it's like, that doesn't happen to the Democrats, right? And it's yep. not just anecdotal, like we've seen the data on this with, with many different conservative uh, candidates. So it's uh, it's just banal at this point to say that big tech has its thumb on the scale. Like, yeah, big tech hates conservatives, and we know that. What, what, what really got me was, uh, you know, the, the media. And Carrie and I were running against the media, of course, and, and they called me an election denier for just talking about how, you know, the Hunter Biden censorship like, I think that did more than almost anything else to, to yeah. put Joe Biden in the White House. Oh, well, Blake's denying the 2020 election. And then for Elon to go buy Twitter and now subsequent to this 2022 election, of course, but into the Twitter files. And now it's like the sordid details are out there. It is just demonstrable fact that people at Twitter were censoring this information with the sole goal of helping Joe Biden win office. This is just not a conspiracy theory anymore. It's just true. Former FBI in Twitter and current FBI yeah, outside Baker of Baker and yeah, I mean, so it's really bad and we need to disentangle it and, <laughs> and, and, and look at how hard the media is going after Elon. Um, Elizabeth Warren is going after Elon, right? Deep state. To the extent you yeah, think this, this article by uh, the Daily Mail is worth reading because what you see is agent after agent after agent after agent after agent. And, and you see in the named and you see them in, in so many positions of power. But those are the ones that we know about. What about the ones that are undercover? What about the ones that we don't know about? What about the ones that are compromised at high level positions of power? So there's multiple layers to this, not just overt agents and spies working inside of these big tech social media companies. There's a different layer to this that again not only shapes their companies but shapes the minds of america and and i could make the argument here throughout the last few years overall social media has been a net negative for the american people it has led to a mental health crisis it has led to a lot of debauchery it has led to the destruction of the family unit it is leading towards what i believe is the great reset which is essentially just this kind of larger ideas this larger agenda that is absolutely screwing you over and only empowering the government so uh um, they're using it. It's a psyop. It's a psychological operation, and you are the target, and you are the victim. All right. So, on the topic of the FBI infiltrating big media, what are some of your thoughts? I mean, it was kind of like that Tucker clip that I played this last episode about how they they tried to make people. I mean, that's when the term conspiracy theory first happened and that's when they started making people try to feel crazy by calling them conspiracy theorists uh these people are being branded as loonies with this phrase conspiracy theorist and it's not some new thing this is something that they have been proven to have done for many years uh using this as a tool to discredit people that are on the hunt you know well it's and, like uh, when my and... when my dad passed they labeled him in the news like in these big articles as a as a i can't say the word you know a, a um anti uh person and they 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 tried to make him look as bad as they could and i mean i've written emails to the people that have written the articles like calling them out like you don't know what you're talking about 
So it's uh, if you have a different opinion, I mean, the FBI is going to try to take you down, right? The use of the FBI as a political extension. Mm -hmm. And so that brings us to our next video of the FBI might be gaslighting us. Let's check this out. The FBI is gaslighting you. I love him. <laughs> it's great. It's great. Ah, welcome back to the JP Reacts channel where we love to explore the lies, hypocrisy, and corruption of tyrants and call them out on it, amongst other things. Today is the FBI. As you probably know, we did another video covering how the FBI, well, there's now what's, uh, what's the word? Uh, oh, proof that the FBI colluded with Twitter to censor the free speech of Americans. That couldn't be more unconstitutional. And by the way, that's not speculation, that's actual proof with hard evidence. That's what the Twitter files revealed. And then it was revealed in, I believe, Twitter file dump number seven, that not only that, the FBI was paying Twitter to censor Americans. They paid them over $3.4 million with your tax money. Cover that in another video, but just restating it here for context, because the FBI issued a statement in response to the Twitter files and Elon Musk sharing hard evidence on what they've done. Here's the FBI's response, and I'm taking this from the Epoch Times Instagram account. It's all over the place, but this is just one concise source I wanted to share. So they said a bunch of garbage, and then, <laughs> Here's the best gaslighting part. It is unfortunate that conspiracy theorists and others are feeding the American public misinformation with the sole purpose of attempting to discredit the agency. <laughs> the gaslighting, we have proof you did these unconstitutional, illegal things. They're like, no, no, uh, what you actually got there is misinformation and where it came from is conspiracy theorists. This is gaslighting at its finest. So, I mean, just the, the nerve it takes to pretend that people are so dumb to fall for this gaslighting statement. Oh, that's misinformation coming from conspiracy theorists? Oh, I thought it, uh, let, let me just click over to what I thought it was. I, I thought it was hard evidence released in the Twitter files that says the FBI's influence campaign may have been helped by the fact that it was paying Twitter millions of dollars for its staff time. And specifically from one Twitter staff member to another prior to Elon's reign, this is from an email. This is called hard evidence. It's not a theory. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's called reality. It says, I am happy to report we have collected $3,415,323 since October 2019, which is referring to the amount Twitter has collected from the FBI. <laughs> so they're like, oh yeah, yeah, that that's misinformation. No, it's reality, FBI. You're making yourselves look less credible. Now you started by looking extremely uncredible, and then trying to gaslight your way through this, you make yourself look mm, less credible. <laughs> so, I don't know, defund the FBI? I don't know, it's, I don't know, is that a good thing? Maybe they have some important things going. We know they're, they also have things going that work against Americans. So I don't know if defunding the FBI is a solution or not, but I know the, <laughs> 
FBI policing Americans and then trying to thought police Americans with their gaslighting, that is not in America's best interest. That is not the FBI serving America. That is the FBI trying to serve itself at the expense of Americans. There couldn't be a better example of gaslighting than the FBI coming out and saying, oh yeah, that hard evidence you see there, that's misinformation. It's just really a shame that conspiracy theorists are spreading that misinformation to intentionally deceive Americans about our agency. <laughs> Go f yourselves, FBI. And by the way, I'm sure you're listening to me record this right now, so. I just want you to know I genuinely mean that. By the way, the, the best defense against gaslighting is simply being a free thinker. You know, gaslighting, it's like a, a woman who's beaten in a relationship. The guy gaslights her. He's like, no, like I'm not being abusive. I just love you. It's like, oh, okay. It's a, incredibly disempowering. It's incredibly abusive. It's psychologically abusive. I think you and I don't need to fall for that. And I think it's worth calling out because it is sheer corruption, especially when it comes from the FBI. It's part of our federal government. They, 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 they don't create their own revenue because they're worthless. So they have to rely on their operations being funded by tax money. And their operations have involved, we have the proof, censoring Americans, colluding with Twitter to do that, but not just that, like we're funding that, but then they take some more of our tax money. It's like, hey, we're actually gonna pay your money to the to Twitter to censor you. And after we do that, you're not supposed to find out, but damn it, you found out. Then we're just gonna tell you we didn't do the thing that we did. And in fact, not only are we not gonna tell you that, we're gonna try to convince you that you're stupid for thinking that we did what we did. That's what gaslighting does. Free thinkers don't fall for it. Yeah, J JP has some really interesting breakdowns. Uh, I, I think it's very significant mm -hmm. that they're doubling down and it's so obvious that there's been so many dupes over the past few years. If this is the only one that they got caught red-handed in and they're still denying it, of course they're denying all the other things like that have been going on the past few years with censorship and the WHO and all these different things that have been pushed on humanity. Yeah, and um, hol holding back on documents and all kinds of stuff just to protect their agency. It's crazy. Yeah. All right, we're going to cycle through a couple other news stories here. Uh, we have the Daily Crunch meta to pay $725 million settlement in a Cambridge Analytica data access case. Uh, Cambridge Analytica, of course, is one of those um, companies that collected the information of many people, and it was used during the 2016 election supposedly to sway the results by uh, hacking and by people with misinformation campaigns. Uh, but, of course, this is the very topic that we're looking at with Twitter, right? But Facebook is an even bigger fish to fry. If you <laughs> guys like uh, Julian Assange, Edward Snowden, they they gave us the red flags years ago, and now we have proof, and people are surprised. But anyways, uh, in another area of interest, banking giant HSBC files trademarks for a wide range of digital currency and metaverse products. So, um, 
a big bank is stepping into crypto and has filed two crypto related trademark applications for its name and logo. Uh, so this is, you know, big central bank digital currency uh, events that we're paying attention to. Um, we have something interesting here. Scientists fed the Fibonacci sequence into a quantum computer and something strange happened. You can have the system behave as if there are two distinct directions of time. So some interesting time travel language there, but it's it's really significant how they're using these sequences in nature, these mathematical uh, equations that create the spiral of creation, right? Supposedly you find it in all these different flowers and uh, aspects of nature, but they fed it into the quantum computer uh, with a physicist, uh, and this is how, Physicist shot a laser pulse sequence mimicking the Fibonacci sequence as at a quantum computer and ended up creating a new phase of matter in the process. According to a study published in Nature earlier this year, they suggest that the newfound phase of matter is particularly robust in preserving information more so than the methods currently used. So this is really interesting in terms of the advance in computing technology. All right, so uh, we're going to go into our next video here, uh, which is the winter storm with more snow on the way. This is something that hit North America just recently, a massive uh, temperature plunge with lots of ice and snow. Possibly one of the worst in history. That's what the governor of New York said about this recent blast. But the full picture is yet to be seen as people continue to dig out of this deep freeze. A brutal winter storm swept across the country, leaving a mess from coast to coast. Power outages were reported from Washington State to Maine. In California, hundreds of flights were canceled at San Diego International Airport. In Jackson, Mississippi, several water main breaks left residents without water. We have uh, dirty water, water coming into my bathroom, smelling like a sewage. There were unusually frigid temperatures in Tampa, Florida. It's extremely cold. <laughs> I can't feel my fingers. But Western New York may have been hit the hardest, even for an area accustomed to punishing snow. We are in a war and this will go down in history as the most devastating storm in Buffalo's long storied history. New York Governor Kathy Hochul said nearly every fire truck in the city was stranded at some point. Um, if we get a structure fire, um, we're in trouble. We can't get our fire trucks down these main roads. By Monday, at least 28 deaths in the Buffalo area were blamed on the ferocious winter storm. Residents who were in Chicago for the Bears and Bills game over the weekend struggled to even make it home. Me and my brother went to the uh, Bears game and the plan was to try to get back Christmas morning to uh, open up gifts for my son. Our flight to Buffalo got canceled. We grabbed another one to Rochester, that got canceled. We slept on the floor in Chicago airport, had to fly to Cleveland just to get a rental. So far, Buffalo has tallied more than 95 inches of snow this winter. That's usually what the area sees in the entire winter season. Some parts of western New York could still get another nine inches of snow through Tuesday. The airport there is expected to be closed at least until Wednesday morning. Even in Buffalo, who is used to the harshest winters around. Exactly. The punishing snow. They're yeah. used to it. It was bad. Yeah. Okay. Shannon, thank you. Wow. So big changing weather. Uh, patterns across the U.S. We have uh, the plummet into the cold 
and a winter that most people will remember. Apparently, it's uh, one of the worst that we've had in uh, recent memory. But uh, so you said you got a little bit of snow, Jeremiah? Very little. I mean, compared to that, I mean, <laughs> what would you say, Opa, about how much snow? We had uh, what I would call a Texas flurry. It was essentially just little flakes coming down. The wind was blowing it around, and it was really, really cold. It got down to seven degrees. Wow. Yeah, stay warm, guys. Uh, <laughs> uh, I know it's warmed up a little bit where we're at. The snow is melting. But um, anyways... Uh, <laughs> You know, with all this government collusion and, and all the drama that's happening here at home, uh, you know, people think that, you know, we, our interests as a nation might be focused on, I don't know, correcting our own issues. But just another reminder, a donation of $54 billion has been made to Ukraine <laughs> in your name with your taxpayer money. Wow. Wow. So this is coming along with that big omnibus bill that Congress is trying to push through. And uh, <laughs> and let's check out this last video clip that I think you'll get a kick out of, Jeremiah. It's a JFK memo to NASA, possibly being one of the reasons they took him out. Check this out. All right. A declassified memo from President Kennedy demands that the CIA share its UFO intelligence with NASA. This letter is dated 10 days before the assassination. Oh. Is there a connection? Could the explosive letter help solve one of the most shocking murders in history? I mean, this document is absolutely sensational. Were Kennedy's probes with the CIA about UFOs cause for alarm or even possibly assassination? November 22nd, 1963, 12.30 p.m. Shots ring out across Dealey Plaza in Dallas, ending the life of President John Fitzgerald Kennedy and sending a nation into mourning. The JFK assassination is one of the most controversial and polarizing cases in American history. It's a decades-old question. Who killed JFK and why? The President of the United States is dead. Over the last 50 years, there have been numerous theories about Kennedy's death. David Marwell headed a review of classified records relating to the assassination. After the assassination, there were a number of official inquiries that were charged with determining exactly what happened to the president. In 1964, the Warren Commission, the official government investigation into Kennedy's assassination, concluded that Lee Harvey Oswald was responsible for the president's death. But many believe there are numerous inconsistencies with the lone gunman theory. It was a crime that was witnessed by hundreds of people, and it's only natural that their observations would differ. Many people believe that JFK had made powerful enemies, even the CIA, and that they were responsible for his assassination. Conspiracy theories linking the CIA to Kennedy's death are well documented. But in 2010, a sensational declassified government memo emerged that some thought provided new possible motives for the agency's involvement in the assassination. A document written by JFK himself. 10 days before JFK was assassinated, he had drafted a letter to the CIA requesting all UFO documents to be released to him. 
In the letter, the president also orders the agency to share their secret UFO files with NASA. It says to the CIA, you will share this information about these unknowns, which means UFOs. You'll share this so that NASA's mission directors will be assisted in undertaking their defensive responsibilities. The date of the letter is intriguing. You've got to wonder if there's a correlation in this short time period between the letter being sent and the assassination. Following the Roswell incident, where an extraterrestrial craft allegedly crashed in New Mexico, the CIA set up a covert group to monitor UFO activity in the U.S. and abroad. Over the following years, it documented and cataloged thousands of sightings. All of a sudden, they're being requested to give over all those documents to President Kennedy. This document is absolutely sensational because when you start talking about sharing information with other agencies, that's the one thing the CIA never liked to do. Now we have to ask the questions. Were Kennedy's probes with the CIA about UFOs cause for alarm or even possibly assassination? This suggestion is unconvincing. But to the CIA, Kennedy's letter may also contain a second, greater threat. This document also goes on to talk about a program of cooperation with the Soviet Union in space. It essentially instructs the CIA to initiate a data-sharing program with the Soviet Union. The request follows a speech Kennedy gave at the UN, where he even suggests that he will collaborate with the Russians on the biggest prize in space, a manned mission to the moon. In the field of space, there is room for new cooperation. Kennedy was actually interested in starting up a joint program between the Soviets and the U.S. to combine our efforts to try and get to the lunar surface. I include among these possibilities a joint expedition to the moon. Some authors and historians suggest that the CIA was infuriated by Kennedy's repeated attempts to cooperate with America's Cold War enemy. This is a period of extreme tension between the superpowers. The theory was that he was uh, killed by the CIA, who feared that he was going soft on the Soviet threat. The revelations in the 2010 JFK memo spark a media frenzy. They appear to provide crucial new evidence for the most controversial murder investigation of the 20th century. Is the letter emotive? Is this a smoking gun? Since the letter was discovered, some have claimed it is a fake. Image analyst Mark D'Antonio assesses its authenticity. Usually we might expect to see top secret down at the bottom and a big stenciled outline or a stamp. The director's name and the top heading are not in the same place as in his other letters. There are discrepancies, that's true. But that doesn't mean it's a fake. David Marwell questions why only one copy of the letter has been provided for investigators. The document looks like a copy. It looks like a carbon copy, so it begs the question where the original is and also why the top has been redacted. Documents do not exist on their own. In 2017, the CIA will release thousands of classified files relating to JFK's death. Perhaps they contain the original letter and will shed more light onto who was behind the assassination. Until then, debate will continue to rage about exactly what happened on that fateful day in Dallas in November 1963. Wow. What did you think, man? Could JFK have been killed because of his interest in the UFO topic? uh, One of the many reasons? Probably. (laughs) 
I mean, I think there are a lot of things that went into it, but now with the revelation of, you know, CIA definitely having something to do with it, I mean, it just makes more sense. I've heard the that theory before, and now it just puts, puts it all together. All the puzzle pieces now fit, and it's kind of getting clearer and clearer and clearer and clearer every time they, you know, every time we find out something new, you know? Well, it, it just goes to show that the information war has been happening for a very long time. Just uh, to connect our last little video there with all the things we talked about at first. But that's all I got for today, Jeremiah. All right. Well, thanks, Jake. Uh, now it's time for an all-new Opa's Corner. Take it away, Opa. My hood, der hat drei Ecken. Drei Ecken hat mein Hut. Und hat er nicht drei Ecken, dann ist es nicht mein Hut. It's time for Opa's Corner now. Some years ago, the Lord came unto Noah, who was now living in the United States, and said, Once again, the earth has become wicked and overpopulated, and I see the end of all flesh before me. Build another ark and save two of every living thing along with a few good humans, thy sons and their wives. He gave Noah the blueprint, saying, You have six months to build the ark before I will start the unending rain for forty days and forty nights. Six months later, the Lord looked down and saw Noah weeping in his yard, but no ark. Noah, he roared, I'm about to start the rain. Where is the ark? Forgive me, Lord, begged Noah, but things have changed. I needed a building permit. I've been arguing with the inspector about the need for a sprinkler system. My neighbors claim that I violated the neighborhood zoning laws by building the ark in my yard and exceeding the height limitations. We had to go to the Development Appeal Board for a decision. And then the Department of Transportation demanded a bond be posted for the future costs of moving power lines and other overhead obstructions to clear the passage for the ark's move to the sea. I told them that the sea would be coming to us, but they would hear nothing of it. Getting the wood was another problem. There's a ban on cutting local trees in order to save the spotted owl. I tried to convince the environmentalists that I needed the wood to save the owls, but no go. When I started gathering the animals, I got sued by the animal rights group. <laughs> They insisted that I was confining wild animals against their will. They argued the accommodation was too restrictive and was cruel and inhumane to put so many animals in a confined space. I'm required to apply for 834 different licenses to keep wild beasts on private property. 
Then, the EPA ruled I couldn't build the ark until they conducted an environmental impact study on your proposed flood. Further, the pitch to waterproof the ark has been banned by the EPA as hostile to the environment. I'm still trying to resolve a complaint with the Human Rights Commission on how many minorities I'm supposed to hire for my building crew. Homeland Security is checking green card status of most of the people who do want to work. The scaffolding to build the superstructure is not OSHA approved and is forbidden for use except for private structures less than five cubits. The trade unions say I can't use my sons. They insist that I have to hire only union workers with art building experience. To make matters worse, the IRS seized all of my assets, claiming I'm trying to leave the country illegally with endangered species. So forgive me, Lord. But it would take me at least a hundred years to finish the ark. Suddenly, the skies cleared, the sun began to shine, and a rainbow stretched across the sky. Noah looked up in wonder and asked, Does this mean you're not going to destroy the world, O Lord? No, said the Lord. The government beat me to it. <laughs> a priest, a rabbi, and a Buddhist monk get arrested for illegal gambling. They went in front of a judge, and she started questioning the priest first. Did you play poker yesterday? The priest mumbles a quick, Lord, forgive me, and answered, No. The judge turns to the rabbi and asks him, Did you play poker yesterday? The rabbi crosses his fingers behind his back and answers a clear, No. Finally, the judge turns to the Buddhist monk and tells him, So, you are a Buddhist monk. I know for a fact that you are absolutely forbidden to lie to me. Did you play poker yesterday? The monk looks at the priest, then at the rabbi. He smiles at the judge and asks, How could I possibly pay poker all by myself? <laughs> and now for the funnies. Brother O'Leary discovers a loophole in his vow of silence. <laughs> Listen, uh, I think we better keep this quiet. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs>
early but unsuccessful practical jokes. Okay, dog. Shake. No, wait. Dang. Okay, get ready. Shake. Oh, no, okay, okay. Get ready. <laughs> Three months, six months, nine months, one year, two year, three year. <laughs> when you get to be my age, things don't work like they used to. <laughs> Walk for your lives! <laughs> it was only a minor earthquake but the Etch-A-Sketch gallery was ruined. <laughs> Everything looks okay. Tubing's not kinked. So why does it keep beeping? Meep <laughs> meep. Looks like Charlie owns Park Place now. Dogopoly. <laughs> Honestly, if I knew how long it would be until they got home, I'd tell you. <laughs> Downtown Tabby. Darling, he's feral. He lives in a barn. He'll bring ruin upon the family. I forbid it. But Papa, I love him. <laughs> he bit the godfather. As a joke, I ask Alexa to make breakfast for me. Apparently, cooking is another one of her skills. <laughs> Face it, Fred. You're lost. <laughs> Wonder if there's any change in here. <laughs> it was a tough frontier town, but later, after the arrival of the Earp brothers, things calmed down, and the town's name was changed and shortened to simply Dodge City. At Humpty's funeral. Say, they did a pretty good job on him. <laughs> huh. 
Well, I'll be. I must have been holding the dang work order like this. <laughs> Herr Mozart, might I suggest more cowbell? <laughs> Santa after the holidays. Nick's roof repair. <laughs> okay, now you guess who your secret Santa is. Cookie cutters. Huh? <laughs> Pie trap. We're in Zabuto country, all right. Turns out it was a marble in the ashtray. This snow globe is beautiful, shatterproof, and makes a satisfying thud when it's shoved off a shelf. It's the perfect gift! <laughs> okay, okay, I did it. She was driving me crazy and I decided I just had to do it. But look, I had helpers, lots of helpers. <laughs> Why they went with a horse. We can't get it to go in the direction we want. <laughs> oh, man. I get you this box, but you have to play with the box it came in. <laughs> Bombs away! If a tree falls in a forest, and no one's there to see it, a chihuahua 500 miles away will bark at it. <laughs> and this concludes another episode of Opa's Corner. My hood, der hat drei Ecken, drei Ecken hat mein Hut. Und hat er nicht drei Ecken, Opa's Corner is now available on my own YouTube channel. Like, share, and subscribe. Opa, thank you for another great Opa's Corner. That was great. Loved it. Yeah, thanks, Opa. All right, well, it's time for some mystery. 
So this week we're going to be talking about uh, probably my favorite mystery. I didn't have enough time to do the JFK uh, Revisited Part 2, but that, that'll be coming soon. But um, we're going to be talking about this man. Can you pull up that picture? Uh, originally went by the alias Dan Cooper, but a, a news person messed it up, and he's forever known as D.B. Cooper, who disappeared November 24th, 1971, 51 years ago. I think that's 51 years ago. Um, nobody knows what happened to him. Let's just play this first clip because it's crazy. During parachute escape from a flying 727 somewhere between wings. Search was made of the plane immediately. We don't know who he was, where he came from, or where he went. I expect that we'll keep looking uh, until we find him or find out what happened. In the afternoon of November 24th, 1971, a middle-aged man carrying a briefcase walked into Portland International Airport and purchased a one-way ticket to Seattle, Washington. The man identified himself as Dan Cooper, and along with 36 other passengers and a crew of six, he soon boarded Northwest Airlines Flight 305. Once aboard, Cooper made himself comfortable in the middle of the last row of seats on the right side of the cabin. He ordered a drink and had a smoke. Once the flight was cleared for departure, Cooper turned around and handed an envelope to flight attendant Florence Schaffner. Inside the envelope was a note featuring a handwritten message stating he had a bomb. Schaffner reluctantly sat down beside him and glimpsed what appeared to be eight sticks of dynamite inside his briefcase. Cooper's demands were quite simple. He wanted $200,000 in cash and four parachutes. He also demanded a fuel truck to stand ready to refuel the aircraft once they landed in Seattle. Should they fail to comply with his demands, he threatened to quote, do the job. Once the flight was airborne, Schaffner went to inform the cockpit crew, while another flight attendant by the name of Tina Mucklow remained by Cooper's side. By using a telephone in the rear of the cabin, Mucklow acted as an intermediary between Cooper and the rest of the flight crew for the remainder of the hijacking. For the next hour and a half, Flight 305 maintained a holding pattern near Seattle, while local and federal authorities scrambled to procure the ransom as well as the four parachutes. $10,020 bills were collected from a local bank, while the owner of a nearby skydiving school supplied the chutes. At 5.45pm, more than two hours past its scheduled arrival, Flight 305 finally touched down in Seattle. By this point, it was well after sunset, and the aircraft was brought to a remote section of the tarmac. Once the flight came to a stop, both the ransom and the parachutes were handed over to Mucklow, who then brought them back aboard. In exchange, Cooper permitted two of the flight attendants, as well as all the passengers, to disembark many of whom had not yet realized the flight had been hijacked. With the ransom paid and only four crew members remaining on board, Cooper told Mucklow to inform the captain that he wanted to fly to Mexico City. They were to fly with the landing gear down, the flaps at 15 degrees and below 10,000 feet. The lights in the cabin were to be switched off and the aft stairway, which opens from the underbelly of the fuselage, was to remain extended. Two of Cooper's demands could not be satisfied. First of all, the flight configuration he'd requested would not allow for a non-stop flight to Mexico City. As such, Cooper proposed a refueling stop in Phoenix, Yuma, or Sacramento before they all agreed on Reno, Nevada. Second of all, it was not possible to depart with a ventral staircase extended. 
Cooper agreed to retract the stairs on the condition that Mucklow remained by his side and taught him how to extend them once the plane was airborne. Parked for nearly two hours due to complications with refueling, Flight 305 was back in the air by 7.36pm. Less than five minutes after takeoff, Cooper told Mucklow to head for the cockpit and that from this point onwards, he was not to be disturbed. The last time she saw Cooper, he was standing in the middle of the aisle as if though he was preparing to jump. Mucklow joined the rest of the crew, locked the cockpit door behind her, and some three hours later, Flight 305 safely landed in Reno. Once the flight came to a stop, the crew carefully ventured into the rear of the cabin, but there was no sign of Cooper, nor the bomb. The aft stairway had been extended mid-flight and was slightly damaged upon landing. It seemed there was only one explanation for the hijacker's absence. At some point between Seattle and Reno, Cooper had strapped on a parachute, walked down the stairs, and leaped into the dark of night. As soon as it became clear that Cooper was no longer on board, dozens of FBI agents converged upon the aircraft only to discover a disappointing amount of physical evidence. A black clip-on tie, eight cigarette butts, and two of the four parachutes were all that Cooper left behind. Evidently, he'd brought the ransom and briefcase along with him. In interviews conducted on the night of the hijacking, Cooper was described by the crew and passengers as a white male with brown eyes and dark hair. He appeared to be in his mid-40s and wore a dark trench coat, a dark suit, a white shirt, a black tie, and dark shoes. Soon after boarding, he'd also donned a pair of sunglasses. Based on this description, the FBI produced the first of several composite sketches. Before they could mount a search, however, the FBI had to figure out when Cooper abandoned the ship. But that was easier said than done. None of the four crew members witnessed Cooper jumping from the plane, nor did the pilots of two fighter jets which escorted the flight between Seattle and Reno, which is not all too surprising given it was the middle of the night. Although the flight crew did report something odd, the last communication with the hijacker occurred at approximately 8.05pm when the crew used the intercom to offer assistance which Cooper declined. Within the next 10 minutes, the crew experienced what they described as an oscillation or vibration of the aircraft. At the time, the crew suspected it might have been produced by Cooper's jump, and a subsequent recreation of the hijacking supported that conclusion. Okay, so that took care of the when, but what about the where? While Cooper was very explicit about the flight's configuration and destination, he never specified any kind of route. In fact, Cooper grew so impatient with the slow refueling in Seattle that he dismissed the captain's request to file a flight plan and simply told him to quote, get the show on the road. As such, the captain chose to fly along an airway known as Victor 23 without any input from Cooper. By using Victor 23 as a guide, authorities estimated the most probable location of the flight at the approximated time of the jump was about 40 kilometers north of Portland. And so, at the break of dawn, the FBI mounted an impressive search operation using helicopters, airplanes, and ground troops. The problem was, even if the estimated bailout point was accurate, Cooper's eventual landing or drop zone was far more difficult to pinpoint. The loosely defined search area covered a vast stretch of mountainous wilderness occluded by a dense forest, so it was truly like finding a needle in a haystack. Apart from the difficult terrain, the search was further complicated by low temperatures and inclement weather, which persisted for days. Despite their best efforts, authorities never managed to find a single trace of Cooper, nor the items he brought along with him. Having made little to no progress by early December, the FBI turned their attention to the $200,000 ransom. 
the money had been collected from the Seattle First National Bank, which maintained a ransom package of $250,000 just for such an occasion. Because of this, the serial numbers of the $10,020 banknotes given to Cooper had been documented in advance, a complete list of which were quickly made available to financial institutions, government agencies, and the general public. The intention was to make it as difficult as possible for Cooper to spend his money. Northwest Airlines and several newspapers even began to offer rewards to anyone who could find a note with a matching serial number. In spite of these efforts, no one ever did. That is until nearly a decade later. In early 1980, a young boy named Brian Ingram was building a campfire on a small beach in southern Washington. As he was digging into the sand, Ingram discovered three bundles of cash totaling $5,880. Having heard about the infamous skyjacking, Ingram's parents brought the severely degraded bundles to the FBI. The notes were promptly inspected, and sure enough, the serial numbers matched those of the ransom. Once the excitement subsided, however, the money managed to raise far more questions than it answered, the most significant of which was how. How did the money end up so far away from the drop zone? Looking at this map, it might be tempting to think that Cooper simply dropped some of the money, which then fell into the Lewis River. The bundles could then have been carried further downstream by the Columbia River, before finally being washed ashore at Tina Bar, which is the name of the beach. Tina Mucklow, Tina Bar, coincidence? Yeah, coincidence. Anyway, the problem with this idea is that the Columbia River flows in the opposite direction. This has led some, including members of the FBI, to re-evaluate initial drop zone assessment. For instance, if the drop zone was much further southeast, close to a river called the Washougal River, it is conceivable, albeit improbable, that the money floated all the way down to Tina Bar. Alternatively, the bundles may have simply landed on the beach if the flight path was further to the west. Even so, natural explanations struggle to explain how three independent, potentially free-falling and or free-floating bundles of cash ended up at the exact same place on the same beach. To complicate matters, sediment from the riverbed was excavated and dumped onto Tina Bar as part of a dredging operation in 1974. And according to one analysis, the money was discovered above this layer of sediment. If true, that would mean the money came to rest at Tina Bar sometime after 1974. But a re-examination of that analysis found that what was believed to be a layer of deposited sediment might actually have been a perfectly natural layer of clay. Not only that, but the sediment was clearly dumped some distance away from where the money was discovered. Furthermore, when Ingram discovered the bundles, the rubber bands which held them together were still intact. This is significant because experiments conducted in 2009 revealed that this brand of rubber bands could not withstand exposure to open air or water for more than a year. So, unless the bundles were somehow protected from the elements, they must have become buried at Tina Bar within a year of the hijacking. The most probable explanation, therefore, seems to be that Cooper or someone else deliberately buried the money. Did Cooper survive and bury the money himself? Did someone else bury the money after stumbling upon Cooper's remains? If there is an explanation which does not require human intervention, it's managed to elude investigators for decades. Suffice it to say, this is a mystery within a mystery. Since Ingram's discovery in 1980, both Tina Bar and the grounds around the Washougal River have been subjected to numerous searches, but to date, there's been no sign of Cooper, nor the rest of the money. So D.B. Cooper, or Dan Cooper, as he originally wrote on the, the, uh, I guess you, Opa, would you have to sign something to get a ticket back then? Do you know? Uh, no, he didn't have to. 
Okay, because that's what he wrote. He wrote Dan Cooper, and they just got it wrong. But he hijacked Northwest Orient Airlines Flight 305, uh, Boeing 727. And what's weird is the stewardess said that he was the nicest hijacker and the most friendly person ever. Like, you would never suspect him, which is almost the perfect, you know, nobody would ever suspect somebody who is nice, you know? Um, what are your thoughts about that, Jake? Yeah, I think the whole story is kind of reminds me of like a, a James Bond type escape and the mystery of, of this guy. Uh, so fascinating. Yeah, pretty interesting. Yeah, really interesting story. All right, well, I have a second part to that video. It's talking about suspects and stuff like that. So let's play that clip. From the very beginning, it was assumed by many that Cooper did not survive his daring escape. It would not make for a very thrilling conclusion to this story, but that's the thing about stories. They're usually far more exciting than reality. While there is no hard evidence for nor against Cooper's survival, the assumption that he fell to his death is not without merit. When Cooper leaped into the darkness, Flight 305 was plowing through a frigid rainstorm at roughly 170 knots, 10,000 feet above southern Washington. The wind was so violent that it ripped out a placard from the aft stairway, which was later recovered in 1978 almost directly below the estimated flight path. To say that Cooper was not dressed for the occasion uh, would be an understatement. The ground beneath him, meanwhile, was obscured by multiple layers of clouds, which likely means that Cooper jumped without knowing his precise location. Even if he could see the ground and had a specific drop zone in mind, the parachute he selected was non-steerable, meaning he would not have been able to steer his descent towards a specific landing spot, thus precluding any potential coordination with an accomplice stationed on the ground. While Cooper expressed some familiarity with parachutes, his actual competence level is up for debate. It's widely believed that Cooper demanded two pairs of parachutes, two primary and two reserve, to make the authorities believe that he intended to take a hostage. That is precisely what happened as the FBI contemplated, but eventually decided against sabotaging the chutes as they did not want to risk the life of an innocent civilian. But in their haste to obtain them, they unintentionally provided Cooper with a non-functional dummy chute intended for training purposes. This mishap seems to have gone unnoticed by Cooper because that dummy chute was one of the two missing from the plane. Not only that, but Cooper chose the older and technically inferior parachute out of the two primary chutes provided. So in both cases, it seems like Cooper made the worst possible choice. But there are other ways to interpret this information. For instance, it's possible that Cooper used the dummy chute not as a reserve, but as a means to secure the bag of money. In fact, that is precisely what Cooper tried to do with the functional reserve chute. First, he tried to place the money in the chute's canopy before removing some of the suspension lines and wrapped them around the bag. Perhaps he used the dummy chute for a similar purpose. And Cooper's decision to use the older primary chute is not necessarily an indication of inexperience. It could also be a sign of familiarity because the chute he left behind was a civilian luxury chute, while the one he used was a military chute. The argument is that Cooper might have been trained as, say, a paratrooper and chose the older military chute because that's the one with which he was most familiar. And there is at least one other reason to suspect that Cooper had a military background. While the flight was in a holding pattern near Seattle, Cooper mentioned that the McCord Air Force Base was only 20 minutes away from the Seattle-Tacoma Airport. At the time, that was an accurate assessment and might suggest a military background. Apart from the potential military connections, Cooper may even have had links to the Central Intelligence Agency. 
You see, the type of aircraft which Cooper chose to hijack, a Boeing 727, was also used by the CIA to covertly drop agents and supplies during the Vietnam War, a task for which the Boeing 727 was uniquely qualified due to its distinctive aft stairway. So it's fairly safe to assume that Cooper chose to hijack a Boeing 727 specifically because it provided a relatively safe means of escape. Whether he learned of this from the CIA or came to that conclusion independently is another question. However, the fact that Cooper chose to hijack a flight operated by Northwest Airlines was apparently random chance. When Tina Mucklow asked Cooper about his motives, he responded, It's not because I have a grudge towards your airline, it's just because I have a grudge. He further clarified that Flight 305 just happened to be in the right place at the right time. Even so, it's clear that Cooper came prepared. He seemed to know a great deal about aircraft and aviation, he appeared to be familiar with the local terrain, he maintained a low profile to avoid a panic, he covered his eyes with a pair of glasses to conceal his identity, he left very little evidence behind, and he demanded four parachutes to force the assumption that he was taking a hostage. He was even cunning enough to reclaim the note which he'd initially given to Florence Schaffner. Apart from the name he wrote on his plane ticket, there are no other samples of Cooper's handwriting. But for all his planning and cunning, it seems Cooper did not give enough thought to his eventual escape. Not only did he fail to specify a route, but he was forced to make a last-minute destination change from Mexico City to Reno. He could have demanded more appropriate parachuting equipment like a pair of boots, a helmet, or jumpsuit. He could even have specified the ransom to be delivered in larger denominations to make it lighter and less cumbersome to carry. Presuming he did survive the fall and made it safely to the ground, he may then have had to make his way through a dense, partially snow-covered forest in nothing but loafers and a trench coat in late November. I get the distinct impression that Cooper's escape was much more of a leap of faith than a carefully executed jump. On the other hand, authorities never received a missing persons report matching the description of Cooper in the wake of the hijacking. This might suggest that Cooper did survive and that he swiftly and quietly resumed his normal routine. Furthermore, other hijackers have performed similar stunts and many of them did survive even if they were quickly apprehended. Finally, the simplest explanation for how three bundles of cash ended up at Tina Bar is human intervention. At the end of the day, most of this is based on nothing but supposition. Without any concrete evidence of Cooper's demise, it leaves the door wide open to the far more exciting proposition that he did, in fact, survive. By the time the press got wind of the hijacking, the FBI had already begun to investigate a few potential suspects. Among them was a man in Portland with initials DB and surname Cooper. This Cooper was quickly eliminated as a suspect, but due to a mix-up by the press, the name Dan Cooper was confused for DB Cooper, and the rest is history. While Dan Cooper is most likely a pseudonym, there is a comic book series of the same name. The comic is written in French and centers around a Canadian pilot named Dan Cooper. While the comic was not translated into English nor sold in the United States before 1971, it was available in Canada, which has a large French-speaking population. Given that American and Canadian accents can be difficult to distinguish, it's possible that Cooper, who was described as having no discernible accent, was a bilingual Canadian. This might even be supported by something that Cooper might have said. You see, when the captain relayed Cooper's demands to air traffic control, he used the phrase negotiable American currency. It seems doubtful that an American citizen would specify American currency, so perhaps Cooper was not American. The problem is, we don't know if this is a direct quote from Cooper or paraphrasing by the captain. 
For instance, notes taken by the crew during the hijacking merely contained the phrase negotiable currency, while testimonies provided by the crew after the hijacking include phrases like $200,000 in cash and circulated US currency. So, Cooper might have been Canadian, and he might have taken his name from the Dan Cooper comics, just as he might have been American, and might have taken his name from something or someone else. Nearly half a century has gone by since the hijacking took place, and in that time, thousands of suspects have been questioned and investigated. It would obviously be impossible to cover all of them here, but let's take a look at some of the people that at some point or another have been suspected of being D.B. Cooper. Oh, this is very interesting. Robert Rackstraw first became a suspect in 1978, and on the surface, he seems like a solid candidate. He was a decorated army paratrooper and helicopter pilot. He had experience with explosives. He had an extensive criminal record. He had an uncle named John Cooper, who was an avid skydiver. He was expelled from the army only months before the hijacking, which might suggest a motive. After all, the hijacker did say he had a grudge. When confronted by journalists and private investigators, Rackstraw would neither confirm nor outright deny that he was D.B. Cooper. Instead, he'd say things like, I could have been, or I would not discount myself. On the other hand, Rackstraw had light-colored eyes, which Cooper did not. More significantly, Rackstraw was only 28 years of age at the time of the hijacking. This is well outside the range of ages reported by the crew and passengers, most of whom believed Cooper was in his mid-40s. Kenneth Christensen first became a suspect in 2003 when his brother noticed certain parallels between him and Cooper. Christensen had briefly served as a paratrooper in World War II, and since 1953 he'd worked for Northwest Airlines as both a mechanic and a flight attendant. He was 45 years old at the time of the hijacking. He was left-handed, which Cooper might have been. For instance, Cooper used his left hand to interact with his briefcase, and the clip-on tie he left on board was affixed with a tie clasp applied from the left. Shortly before he died in 1994, Christensen had supposedly told his brother, there is something you should know, but I cannot tell you. After his passing, his family discovered over $200,000 in his bank accounts. To top it all off, Florence Schaffner stated that photographs of Christensen bore a strong resemblance to Cooper. On the other hand, Christensen did not match the physical description of Cooper. He was both shorter and lighter. While Schaffner did see a strong resemblance, she remarked that Cooper had more hair, and that is supported by the composite sketches. And there was nothing suspicious about the large sums of money which he'd simply earned by selling land. Richard McCoy first became a suspect in 1972 when he hijacked a Boeing 727 and escaped via the aft stairway, much like D.B. Cooper. Because of the significant overlap between the two hijackings, some believe they must have been committed by the same person. McCoy used a fake name, he used a fake hand grenade to threaten the crew, he used handwritten notes to issue his demands. Both McCoy and Cooper used the phrase no funny stuff as a warning to the crew. McCoy demanded $500,000 in cash and four parachutes. McCoy also bailed out the back of the plane once they passed over his hometown in the state of Utah. Apart from the similar modus operandi, McCoy had also served in the Vietnam War as a demolitions expert and a helicopter pilot. McCoy did actually survive the fall and managed to evade authorities for two full days before he was apprehended and sentenced to 45 years in prison. Before his death in 1974, McCoy refused to confirm or deny that he was D.B. Cooper. On the other hand, McCoy was an avid recreational skydiver and even came prepared with a skydiving helmet and jumpsuit. He gave very specific instructions about the flight path. In addition to the fake hand grenade, McCoy also used an unloaded handgun to threaten the crew. 
He failed to retrieve one of the notes he'd given to a flight attendant, he was only 29 years of age at the time of the hijacking, and all three flight attendants were quite certain that McCoy was not Cooper. While there are meaningful parallels between these two cases, McCoy might simply have been a copycat who'd read about D.B. Cooper in the news. Dwayne Webber first became a suspect in 1995 when, shortly before his death, he supposedly told his wife, I've got a secret to tell you, I am Dan Cooper. Following his deathbed confession, Webber's widow recalled a number of fascinating details. She claims to have found a bank bag resembling the one used in the hijacking. She claims Webber had sustained a knee injury after jumping out of a plane. Webber supposedly had a nightmare about leaving his fingerprints on the aft stairs. And a year before the money was discovered at Tina Bar, Webber had allegedly paid a quick visit to the same location. In addition, Webber was a World War II veteran, he had an extensive criminal record, he matched the physical description, and he was 47 years old in 1971. On the other hand, Webber's fingerprints did not match any of the prints collected from Flight 305. Although, to be fair, there's no way to know if any of those prints actually belonged to Cooper. Furthermore, Webber's DNA did not match a DNA sample collected from the tie clasp. But once again, there's no way to know if the DNA on the tie clasp actually came from the hijacker and not someone else. What's so frustrating is that the FBI likely had a much better source of DNA at one point. If you recall, eight cigarette butts were collected from the scene and there's a good chance they were all suffused with Cooper's DNA. The problem is, that evidence was lost at some point and has not turned up since. William Smith first became a suspect in 2018. Smith served in the Navy during World War II and likely had some experience with parachuting. He was 43 years old at the time of the hijacking, he had dark brown eyes, he matched the physical description, he shared a certain likeness with the composite sketches, especially this speculative sketch of an older D.B. Cooper. A student named Ira Daniel Cooper, who was killed in World War II, attended the same high school as Smith. Smith worked as a yardmaster for a railroad company for most of his life, but in 1970 the company filed for bankruptcy. As a consequence, Smith lost his pension, which might suggest a motive. He could, for instance, have developed a grudge towards the airline industry for their role in bringing about the downfall of the rail transportation industry. It's further speculated that Smith could have used his knowledge of railroad networks to hop on a train and escape undetected. On the other hand, Smith spent his entire life in the northeastern United States. Given that the hijacking occurred on the other side of the country and was committed by someone who at least appeared to be familiar with the local terrain, Smith is not the most ideal candidate. However, the fact that Smith worked as a yardmaster is interesting. You see, the tie that Cooper left behind was recently examined using an electron microscope, which uncovered various metallic particles. Some of these particles, especially pure titanium, were quite rare in 1971. This might suggest that Cooper worked as a manager at some sort of chemical or metallurgical facility, or possibly a rail yard. If nothing else, I hope this limited selection of suspects illustrates just how difficult it is to be certain when you have so little evidence to work with. These five individuals look nothing alike, yet any one of them could be D.B. Cooper. Was Cooper really in his mid-40s or did he simply look old for his age? Did Cooper really serve in the military? Which one of these sketches most closely resemble Cooper? In 2016, the FBI had to admit defeat and officially close down the case. Unless someone stumbles upon Cooper's remains or manages to track down the rest of the money, it seems there is little hope of resolution. Did Cooper survive? I have no idea. But as long as that possibility cannot be dismissed, 
the legend of D.B. Cooper will no doubt persist. So that is my favorite mystery case probably of all time. Uh, I know my girlfriend gets tired of watching D.B. Cooper things, but I could really go into detail if you guys want. Uh, you guys just let me know. Uh, but I thought it was very interesting that there is DNA and that they're not trying harder. And I also think it's interesting that two people that I love have the same last name as two of the suspects. I won't go into that, but I may know a relative of D.B. Cooper. But um, what did you think about that uh, comic book? Yeah, man. Uh, I, pretty crazy, huh? Yeah. Can you pull that up, Opa, that last picture? Is that not crazy? It, the, the story is about a hijacker. And I saw this wow. in, a, in a documentary, and it's it's literally, like, exactly what he did. So, I mean, it's just kind of funny. that Jumping from the plane. <laughs> you know, it, it really makes me wonder how many people like him have made it away with crazy heists and stuff like this. Yeah, and about 50-50, uh, some people think he's dead. Some people think he's alive. I mean, I think that money could have not been there if he wasn't alive. Uh, I think it's uh, Ken Kenny Christensen, if I'm if I'm being honest, because all he would have to do is put on a toupee and some sunglasses. I mean, what a perfect getaway. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? And uh, that's one of the people that I could be, I, somebody I love could be related to. Lindsay's last name is, and it's spelled the same way. My girlfriend's last name. Kind of funny. So anyways, that's all I got for, for D.B. Cooper. If you guys want me to do a really deep dive and kind of go over some of the really crazy details, I can. So just let me know. So that's all I got. You ready for some memes? Yeah, let's do it. Meme me up, man. Now, of course, in light of the big snowstorm, check this out. Uh, a little bit of snow on the ground and everyone forgets how to drive. <laughs> and if you pay attention, it's a picture of a train crossing the road. That's crazy. Pretty crazy, man. Uh, in light of also being given a copyright strike on YouTube, super callous, fastest, risky, experimental doses. Yes, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> it's my body, my choice, because you want me to have a super callous, fastest, risky, experimental dose. Amen. <laughs> Exper <laughs> experimental. Oh, Experiment. man. It wasn't even a All copyright right, uh, strike. It was a, it was a, a misinformation. Content. Yeah, Crazy. misinformation strike. Anywho. Here we go. Uh, remember, as days get colder, animals are attracted to the warmth of cars. So check wheel arches and other hiding places. <laughs> it's a picture <laughs> of a cow chilling out on the hood. What would you do if that oh, was your man. car? I would freak out. I wouldn't know what to do. Yeah. I mean, you could like honk the horn or something, but then you'd be, you know, nervous. It would get mad at you. I mean, that thing has <laughs> horns. I know with my father-in-law living on a uh, a farm with lots of cattle, you have to be the big boss, bigger, badder, scary creature, and and usually they're pretty timid. But the moment you act kind of nervous, they'll eat you alive. I'll walk all over you. 
Walk on your car. Back in my day, people died non-suddenly. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Oh, man. Awesome. And uh, final meme of the day. Studies have shown that it do be like that sometimes. <laughs> what? All right. Oh, man, it's been a good show with you today, Jeremiah. Uh, Thank thanks you, man. for participating with my funny, you know, crazy stories and stuff. I love the current news that you bring because it's stuff that I haven't heard of. And, you know, I really like to, it, you go more into detail than what the normal news would do. And that's what I love about Skiba News Nation, having you as my co-host because you're the best at it. So thanks, Nope man. is the best at what he does. And, and I hope you guys enjoy the show, you know. Because we work pretty hard. Oh, so, yeah. anyways, I mean, that's all we got for today? That's it? I think so. All right. Well, thank you for the current news. And, Opa, thank you for the great Opa's Corner. And I hope you enjoyed the history. And uh, I hope you enjoyed episode 29. We'll see you in episode 30. If you would like to submit a story, topic, or have any other inquiries please email submit at skibanewsnation.com. Also, you can email Jeremiah Skiba personally at jeremiah at skibanewsnation.com. Also, email Jake personally at jake at skibanewsnation.com. If you want to write us a letter, send us something, help support us, or just say hi, please send your letter to Jeremiah Skiba, P.O. Box 560-271, The Colony, Texas 75056. If you write us a letter, I'll do my best to write you back. Hey, Skiba News Nation family, thank you for watching. Please like, share, and subscribe. You can also help support this channel by getting yourself some Skiba News Nation merch. Also, we are proud to announce that we are now on Patreon, where you will get bonus content, shoutouts, and much more. Thank you again for watching and helping us stay on the quest for truth. Huge shout out to all our Patreon supporters. Thank you so much for your support. We couldn't do this show without you. If you want to help support us, go to patreon.com forward slash Nation. We are also proud to announce that Skiba News Nation podcast is now available on podcast platforms. 